Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Bonnie Kistler, author of the new novel, The Cage. Bonnie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, The Cage, how would you describe the novel? Uh, it's a thriller. You might call it an office thriller. Some people call it a legal thriller. The main character is a lawyer working for a large international fashion conglomerate. Uh, it's a thriller in the sense that it immediately begins with a disturbing incident. Two women working late on a Sunday night at the office get onto an elevator. The elevator stalls. It's broken down. They call One of them calls 911 for help. It's two hours before they're rescued, and by the time the doors open on the lobby level, one of the women is dead of a gunshot wound to the head. The survivor, who's the main character, Shay Lambert, explains to the police that her co-worker in the elevator, Lucy Carter-Jones, had a panic attack when the elevator stalled and just went hysterical, pulled a, a gun from her purse and killed herself. The police have good reason to be suspicious of this explanation, and they, they haul Shay in for extended interviews at the police station, and she tells her story, and things are not exactly what they seem to be. It's hard to know if she's telling the complete truth. And meanwhile, her boss, the general counsel of the company, seems to be working against her to actually frame her for the murder of her coworker in the elevator. So that's the plot in a nutshell. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write your novel, The Cage? Yeah, there were a couple intersecting ideas. The first, the setup of the elevator, was a, a sort of a germ of an idea that had been with me for a long time. I, I practiced law for many years and always worked for big law firms who were officed in high-rise buildings. So I spent a lot of hours riding up and down elevators. And a lot of people have a fear of getting stuck in elevators or they're claustrophobic or something. I didn't have that kind of fear. My fear was always getting stuck in an elevator with somebody I didn't like or somebody who didn't like me. <laughs> Opposing counsel was my my biggest fear, somebody that I just had, I just crossed swords with in the courtroom and then have to be stuck in an elevator with them. And as, you know, I, as I often say, that my fear of confrontation was a terrible trait for a trial lawyer, but there you have it. Uh, so I... <laughs> I imagined a lot of different scenarios happening in this in this trapped elevator with another person. And so that was where the germ of the idea came of, of Shay and Lucy being trapped in the elevator together and what's the worst thing that could happen. Now, the other factors that sort of influenced the larger themes of the novel have to do with um, workers, the exploitation of workers. I suppose if you wanted to really put this in geopolitical terms, it would be, you know, capitalism at large. But specifically... Uh, the Great Recession back in 2008, I, I just knew a lot of uh, bright young professionals who lost their jobs through no fault, you know, just a bad economy came along at the just the worst time in their career path, and they never quite recovered. They never got back onto the same spot on the ladder of success that they would have occupied had this never happened. And that's the backstory of, of Shay Lambert, who's a, a rising star in a big law, Wall Street law firm when she's laid off in 2008 and through a lot of uh, bad decisions on her part and her husband's part, she never recovers. And so the action picks up five years later when finally at long last she lands a job uh, where she can be a lawyer and use, use her skills 
at this, this fashion company that I mentioned. And then thinking about the exploitation of labor, then I also started thinking about um, the, the sweatshops where the clothes, the, you know, the fashionable clothes are made and the working conditions of, of people you know, in far-flung countries. And then it all kind of tied together in my mind. And that's where, that's where the whole story came from. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, you did practice law as a lawyer. During that time, did you always want to write fiction? And, and what kind of led to your shift to writing novels and thrillers? You know, I always wanted to be a novelist. Uh, in college, I was scribbling novels, but I had very much a sense of wanting to first, you know, be able to support myself uh, and earn earn a decent decent living uh, to support myself in the manner to which I hope to become accustomed. Uh, so I, I decided to go to law school. I didn't go the MFA route or, you know, or just decide to drop out of society and become a writer. I, you know, joined the real world. And even though all the years that I was practicing law, I was wishing that I could be a full-time novelist instead. I, I think it was the right move. I think not just because I was able to earn a living, but because I think that living in the real world, uh, living in the business world, and meeting different kinds of people, grappling with different kinds of situations, I think that that's all helped to inform my writing uh, in ways that it would not have had I always been a full-time writer. So I, you know, I think it was the right path for me. Sure. And and can you tell us um, what was kind of the the prompt or or I mean you just told us that you were you know working this legal career and and thinking about being a novelist. What made you finally sit down and and write that first novel? You know, I wrote my first novel commuting on the train and actually in longhand on a legal yellow pad, yellow, yellow legal pad. Uh, you know, put it in a drawer. It, it all depended on what was going on in my in my work life, you know, and, and my family life in terms of when I had time to actually do it. But I finally, you know, managed to pull together what I thought was, you know, a reasonably se reasonable semblance of a novel, sent it out into the world, managed to get an agent. And once uh, I achieved a little bit of success there, I was able to finally convince myself and convince my family and my law partners that my time would be better spent as a full-time writer. And so that's when I finally left my law firm. Gotcha. And so what is your writing process when you're working on a novel like The Cage? Do you outline the novel extensively or are you um, someone who just kind of like goes with the narrative? You know, somewhere in between those two, Jeff. Um, I always, when I start a novel, I always know what my, my, premise is, what the main premise of the story is going to be, and where I think I'm going to end up, and I know what the main cast of characters is. Go from there, I really don't, I, I certainly don't sit down and, and write out an outline of scene by scene or chapter by chapter. I just, you know, sort of go where the story takes me. I often have to go back and, and amend and, and augment and so forth as I go, because as the story is taking me someplace, I realize that, well, I really needed this earlier scene here to set this up here. And, and so it's a lot of back and forth that way. Uh, but I, I don't try to, to plot it out scene by scene, not only because it hasn't yet come to me, but because, mm -hmm. you know, it takes me a year or sometimes longer to write a novel and I get bored, bored very easily just with life in general. But if I got bored with my own story, I think that I would, you know, just abandon it. I'd chuck it out. 
I need to keep surprising myself right. as I as I write, or I wouldn't stay engaged enough to actually complete it. So, are you working on a new novel now? I am. I am. Although the follow up to the cage is already done, it's it's in the can, as they say, and it's going to be published uh, early next year, twenty twenty three. That's great. Uh, I'm, I'm just now. I'm in the infancy of another book after that. Gotcha. And what writing advice would you offer for those who are listening who may be working on their own stories and novels? I think that the best way to be a good writer is to be a good reader. I really advise people to to read well and widely to and to deconstruct as they read, to really think not just about the story, but how the author accomplished what the author accomplished. And what worked for, and also what doesn't work if, if you're reading a story and you think, you know, this really didn't surprise me or it didn't engage me. And, or, you know, I think all of us are to some extent guilty of, of reading some books and some parts you just skim over, you know, just like, oh, this is boring or this is a description, you know, you just, and, and think to yourself, is there anything in your own writing where the writer would want to just skim over it? If, if so, you know, you need to get rid of that part or you need to reconstitute it, uh, I just think that reading other people's books, good or bad, really, is the best way to train yourself to write your own books because you you can really see how it's done and think about, you know, reverse engineering it. Sure. On that note, what novels have you read recently that you enjoy? You know, I just finished uh, Ruth Ware's uh, novel, The Turn of the Key, which is, it's interesting how she does this. It's It's a deliberate homage to the classic Henry James, the turn of the screw about the governess and the, in the house that might be haunted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she had, I will say, you know, a lot of it, I was like, oh, I'm not sure this is as much. Yeah. This is more detailed about a, you know, what governesses or nanny's life than I need. You know, I'm just really not sure where it's going. And, and then there was just a terrific surprise at the end. I had to just <laughs> back, sit back and applaud her and say, oh yeah, yeah. Now I see what you're doing. So that that's, that's certainly made a big impression on me. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Uh, well, I have a website, bonniekistler.com, uh, where you can find a lot of information. And I'm on the social media uh, places. Uh, Bonnie Kistler Author is my Facebook page. And on Instagram and Twitter, I am Bon Mot, B-O-N-M-O-T. I guess the French pronunciation would be <laughs> Bon Mot, <laughs> 101. I, because I'm an American, I say Bon Mot, 101, uh, at, on both those platforms. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Bonnie Kistler, author of the new novel, The Cage. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Bonnie, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Great. Thank you. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Cage by Bonnie Kistler, read by Piper Goodeve and Chris Andrew Ciula, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. The fog hovered high over the city, invisible in the cold night sky, except for the diffused reflection of the urban sky glow. The only surface it touched was Marketplace Tower, the city's newest and tallest office building, where it painted a coat of rhyme over every sparkling facet of the spire. If anyone could see it, 
They might imagine a sugar-frosted fairyland, but no one could, in the fog, in the dark. Down on the street, a van stopped at the entrance to discharge a crew of three men. As they unloaded their machines from the back and wheeled them to the door, one of the men, the new one, paused on the pavement and looked up, and up some more. The thirty stories that loomed over the street were dark, except for two gauzy glimmers on the topmost floor. He craned his head back farther. The two lights glowed on opposite sides of the building, and as the fog drifted through the sky, they dimmed and brightened like lighthouse lanterns warning of two separate hazards. In the building's lobby, a guard sat at a security console that faced the three sets of revolving doors. CCTV videos lit up four screens in front of him. On the fifth, he was watching the game. Behind him stretched the bank of elevators, five cars on either side with a destination dispatch console between them. Their doors were etched with a gridwork of black bars, an homage to the old cage-style elevators of the Edwardian era. The three men buzzed for entry, and the guard looked up and pushed a button to release the lock. They signed in and stowed their coats in an empty office off the lobby, rubbernecked the TV, and asked for the score. Twenty-two knotten, the guard told them. They whistled, then started up their machines and tugged on their headphones to listen to the game as they worked. The lobby floor was sienna marble inlaid with geometric diamonds of onyx, and the polishers glided over it like zambonis. Thirty floors up, a woman stood very still at her office window. On a clear day, she could see the Manhattan skyline. Tonight, she saw nothing but her own reflection. She was in her early forties, slender and petite, with alabaster skin and faded blonde hair cut in a stylish swoop. Although it was a Sunday night, her makeup was flawless, and she was dressed for a workday in a silk blouse and tailored trousers and pointed toe heels with the distinctive red soles that marked them as a high three-figure purchase. She gazed at herself in the darkness, her face utterly still, until at last she turned and picked up her coat and pulled her office door shut behind her. A beep sounded as the electronic lock engaged, and she headed down the corridor. At the far end of the same floor, on the side without a view, the other point of light shone over a different desk. Its surface was covered with stacks of paper, flying flags of multicolored tabs on the margins, and topped with post-it notes. In the shadows, six feet away, stood a different woman, six inches taller and ten years younger. She looked even younger, with her sloppy ponytail and pale bearskin face. She, too, was dressed for a workday, though not in designer wear, and she, too, stared at her reflection in the glass. But her face wasn't still. A muscle twitched at the corner of one bleary eye, winking on and off like a semaphore. She'd been at her desk for more than 14 hours. Wearily, she turned, slid some papers into a battered canvas bag, and picked up her coat. There was no lock on her office door, and she left it standing open. As she trudged to the elevator, a hush swelled through the penthouse corridors, broken only by the abiding hum of the building's mechanicals. They wheezed like a hospital ventilator on a comatose patient. When she arrived at the elevator bank, the older woman was already there. 
She didn't respond when the younger woman spoke to her. The center elevator arrived. The doors slid open. The women stepped on. The doors closed. 911, what's your emergency? We're stuck in an elevator. The power's gone out. Okay. Can you tell me your name? Shay Lambert. What's your location? Marketplace Tower. We're stuck in the elevator. The power's completely out. I pressed the alarm button, but nothing happened. The intercom isn't working, and the air compressor's out too, I think. We're in total darkness. Is someone there with you? One other person. Lucy Barton-Jones. This is her phone I'm calling on. Is she all right? I'm not sure. She seems pretty upset. Uh, let me talk to her. Okay. Hold on. I have to turn on the phone lights so I can see where she is. Okay. There. They want to talk to you. I'm putting the phone to her ear. Hello? This is the 911 operator. Can you tell me your name? Hello? Are you all right? Hi, it's me again. Lucy's not talking. She seems really out of it. We need to get her out of here. The fire bureau has been dispatched. Please stay on the line. I don't know. This phone's about to die. It's got like 1% charge left. Stay on the line. Rescue workers will be there soon. No, I'd better conserve the battery. I might need the flashlight again. Best if you stay on the line, ma'am. No, but thank you. Hello? Hello?